Well, it's just delightful to have you all here. Um, uh, really glad. I hope you've had a wonderful Thanksgiving. We've had a good one. Y'all come on in. Come on in. Introduction takes a good five minutes today. and You'll get in, get a seat, get some coffee, go to sleep. We'll wake you up when the lesson starts. So um, we've been going through the New Testament, and I thought we might have some visitors here this week that, that would not necessarily have been in the flow of what we've been studying I haven't seen you all since the game yesterday. Um, But uh, 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 so anyway, um, this is a little bit of an insert into where we were. And I put off what I was going to teach today until next week. Next week, we'll look at the synoptic problem. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when they tell the same story, sometimes they say it differently. Sometimes things are ordered differently. Sometimes they seem to have different details. It puts scholars into a quandary about what's going on. And we're going to discuss that next week so that you're well-armed to understand those discussions when you see them and when you read the Bible so that you've got some ideas of, of what's going on and why it's going on that way. But that's not where we are today. Today we're going to start with the miracles in Matthew. And as I was writing the lesson, I was reminded of an event that happened in Los Angeles. I've got some friends who are in from Los Angeles, uh, including one uh, uh, lawyer from our firm in the L.A. office. And I had a chance to be in trial in Los Angeles a year or two ago. I don't remember exactly when it was. But uh, uh, I was in getting ready for trial at least. The case didn't wind up going to trial. But we were in the war room. And so I'm surrounded by my team. And the the team is uh, a number of different people, including Juan and Jesse. And Juan and Jesse, one of their jobs is to keep Bob and I on the straight and narrow. And they do a wonderful job of that. But uh, in the process, they're also DJs by hobby. You know, they, they play at weddings and things like that and receptions and parties. And there was a lull in the work as we were waiting for something to come in and and uh, Juan or Jesse, I think it was Juan, said to me, they call me boss uh, for some reason. I don't understand because I call Becky boss. But um, <clears throat> they said to me, hey, boss, um, do you and Becky have a song that's your song? I said, do we have a song? I said, we got songs for every occasion. We have a song from high school. We have a general marriage song. We have songs for our courtship. We have song, a song for Guatemala. We have a song for Valentine's Day. And they were, yeah, right, because they think that I'm always trying to one-up whatever they do, which is generally true. But this time, I was being honest. And they, Jesse says, yeah, right, boss. And uh, you're just making that up. I said, no, I'm not making it up. So I got my little iPhone. I dialed Becky and I put it on speaker before she got on the phone in the room with eight or nine different people. She answers the phone. Hello. And I have learned to let her know when it's on speaker. (laughs) Took me a while, but I've learned that. And to let her know at the start of the conversation and not midway through. I've learned that too. I said, uh, hey, Beck, I've got you on speaker. There's a room full of people. She says, hello, room full of people. I said, "Um, Juan has a question for you. Juan says, hey, Becky, do you and Mark, uh, uh, you and boss have a song? Becky's reply. And I'm not even remotely joking at all. 
She says, a song? What do you mean a song? We have a lot of songs. We have a song from high school. We have a song for marriage. We have a song for Guatemala. We have a song for Valentine's Day. We have a song for our courtship. We... And at this point, they're laughing and thinking it's a setup. Like somehow she and I, through some Kreskin magic, <laughs> knew what was coming down. And I had wired her. And so that, that's their response. It's, oh yeah, you've clearly gone through this before and y'all have planned this out. I said, no, we haven't. And they said, okay, Becky, don't say anything. Boss, what was your song from high school? Well, I have a legal pad in front of me. I write on the legal pad, float on by the floaters. Now, I might add, that was not our song because it's this incredibly wonderful romantic song. We actually made fun of it, and that's why it's our song. But it's, uh, let's see. Float on by the floaters, me and Becky. Coronado High School, 1977. Um, it goes like that for about 11 minutes. <laughs> so they're looking at what I've written on the paper. And they said, okay, Becky, what was your song from high school? Becky says, float on by the floaters. No! So we had to proceed to give the Lindsay Buckingham song for Guatemala, the Al Green song for General Marriage, the Courtship song from Billy Joel, and we proceed to nail each one of them time after time, enough to where it made everybody sick to their stomach. <laughs> but it's easy to do, because Becky is not only my wife, she's my best friend. And I, over the years... I've gotten to know her really well. On the left, that's her when I first met her. She wasn't really a cheerleader. Her mom bought her the uniform so she'd fit in. I'm, I'm joking. She was, she was head cheerleader, but we tease her about that. <laughs> um, and, uh, uh, and then that's Becky on the right. Over the years, I've gotten to know her really well. And I can tell you some of the things she's thinking. I can finish some of her sentences. I can tell some of her jokes. But for as well as I know her, she's still a mystery to me in many ways. She's surprising me. She's uh, got layers of character and development that it's a joy to get to know on a daily basis because I know her well, but she's still a mystery. And to me, as I think about my relationship with my wife, I think about in some ways the way it, it parallels some of my relationship with God and His Scripture. Because over the years, and I've walked, been blessed to walk with the Lord for over 40 years. And over that time, I've gotten to know God much better than I ever did before. And I can chart and see how much I've grown in my understanding and appreciation for who He is. But God, revealed through Jesus and revealed through Scripture, both of which are telling testaments to who God is. Jesus, God incarnate. And Scripture, God's revelation.
Both of those have helped me learn who God is very well. But of course, God is still very much a mystery to me. And so you've got what you know, but you've got this mystery. And I want to share some of that with you today. I want to share some of that because we're going to look at the miracles of Matthew. And miracles are a real stumbling block to a lot of people. There are a lot of people who say, okay, if God is a God of miracles, how come I've never really seen one that I could absolutely without question say, that is a miracle of God? And I want to, I want to talk about that some. I think that's an important thing to talk about because it's a thing that nags on some people. And in times of my life, it's nagged on me. And so I want to share with you some of the things that I've learned and some of the things that have sort of gotten me where I am today as we look at the miracle stories that are in the Gospel of Matthew. So time permitting, God permitting, we're going to make it through every miracle story in Matthew with one exception, uh, and I'll try and throw that one in if I get a chance. I've divided these stories up into categories. Matthew doesn't do this. This is me. I want to talk about the stories that are healings. And then I want to talk about the stories that are the casting out of demons or exorcisms. Then we're going to talk about some I just call supernatural acts. And then finally we're going to look at resurrections, plural. So let's do that. Let's start with the miracles and we'll start, the, I mean, the healing miracles. And when we do it... We've got to recognize that in the very beginning of Matthew, when Matthew's setting out kind of his overriding statement, his topic sentence in a sense, his theme for his book, he sets out the ministry of Christ in Matthew 4 verse 23 where he says that Jesus went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Now look what he says. Matthew links up Jesus teaching and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom with healing every disease and affliction. Matthew is all about the kingdom of God. Matthew is the, 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 the book that's got the Lord's Prayer in the manner that we most often quote it. Where it says, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Matthew's all about the kingdom. Matthew uses that kingdom word over and over and over, more so than any other gospel writer or any other writer in the New Testament. But for Matthew, the kingdom of God, which was coming and being heralded by the advent of Christ came hand in hand with what Jesus did on earth. So his miracles are not separated from the kingdom. They're a manifestation. They are another way that Jesus was teaching and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And I want us to understand that. So we're going to look at healings in the kingdom. Because these are healings in the sense of the kingdom itself. These healings show who the Lord of the kingdom is. Who is the king of kings? Who rules the kingdom of heaven? The Lord, the miracle working God, who is first and foremost a God 
of compassion. If you are in the kingdom of God and you want to list the traits of your king, then through the miracles he works, we see a major trait of God through Jesus to be compassion. As simple as that is. The compassion in the hidden touch. Here's the hidden touch story. Jesus is going to heal a man's daughter who's died. He's going to resurrect that daughter. And on the way, there's a woman who's had an issue of blood for over a decade. And the woman's too either embarrassed or too afraid or too ashamed or too nervous or too scared to come up to Jesus and to say, help me. So instead, she sneaks up to him and she touches the the tassels or the hem of his garment. Thinking to herself, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, then I'm going to be made well. Jesus does not allow her to exist in the shadows. Jesus turns around And says to her, face to face, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And he calls her an endearing term. And he lets her know that though she was afraid of a face to face encounter with the Son of God, he did take note of who she was. She wasn't healed because he had miracle clothes. It wasn't some magic kinetic energy that would automatically flow from Jesus if you just touched him at the right place at the right time. It was a decision that Jesus made to heal her because of her faith. And her faith has made her well. Daughter with compassion. Faith has made you well. Now we've got to, whoops, 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 don't go yet. We've got to do a timeout for a minute because Steve gave us a little extra time. So let's go to the Elmo and let's look at this story for a moment. There's a really neat thing here. Um, okay, a little different Bible. We've got to really zoom in on this one. So here it is. She is approaching Jesus and she wants, she comes up behind him. That was, sorry, that was down here. She's had a discharge of blood for 12 years. She comes up behind Jesus. And she's thinking, all I got to do is touch the fringe of his garment. She said to herself, if only I touch his garment, I will be made well. You see that? Be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her said, take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. That's a really cool thing in the Greek. So we're just going to pause for a moment and look at the Greek here. Made well in the Greek is this Greek word, sozo. Okay? Um, In English, we would write that S-O-Z-O. The omega, the long O in Greek, looks like our W. But that's an O. So, sozo means made well. But do you know what else it means? It's used in the Old Testament to translate a number of different words. It's the same word that means 
saved. It's used to translate Jesus' Hebrew name, Yeshua. Sozo is one of the words that the Hebrew scholars use to translate saved into Greek when they translated the Old Testament into Greek before the time of Christ. So what Jesus did when he healed her is he saved her. He saved her from her distress. He saved her from her problems because this is the God of compassion in the kingdom. The kingdom, the healing, is about salvation and saving. Saving from distress, physical distress, and from eternity. So... Just keep that in your brain because we're going to see it a couple of more times as we go through Scripture. But let's keep looking at some of the healings. God of compassion. We go back to the PowerPoint. The merciful stop. I've put a picture up here and you'll get to meet Hal next week perhaps. Hal's our Israel tour guide if we ever um, do another class trip to Israel. This is remnants of the Roman road that went from Jericho... 16 miles to Jerusalem. Now, Jericho in the Rift Valley is an oasis. But between Jericho and Jerusalem, it's desolate. And it's kind of treacherous. This is why Jesus can tell the story of the Good Samaritan who's beset by robbers on the road to Jericho. So, Jesus has left Jericho. There's a crowd going with him. They've got a 16-mile trek before they get to any place that's worth stopping. And outside of Jericho are two blind men. And these blind men are yelling out, Oh, son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd's kind of like, Hey, this is a long road trip. You know, we already did our potty break. We got to get 16 miles. It's hot. It's desolate. It's not safe at night. We don't need to be out walking. We got to get to Jerusalem. So, sorry, blind guys, but shh. Jesus stops. And the way Matthew tells the story, he says, Jesus stops. And he stops in this desolate place on the road there, and he says, Woo. He touches their eyes and he heals them. But when Matthew says it, Matthew says Jesus in pity touched their eyes. It's Matthew 20 verse 34. And since Steve gave us more time, we'll look at it. It's a great story. 20 verse 34. Good this way. Okay, a little bit bigger. That work for y'all? You can sort of see that. Okay, as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. Behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. When they heard Jesus was passing by, they cried, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked him, saying, shut up. That's my translation. Uh, They're more polite in the Bible. It's be silent. But I assure you, someone was saying shut up in Hebrew. They cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And, I love this, whoops, up here, and stopping. Stop. Everybody just stop. Stopping. 
Jesus called them. And he said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. And immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. That word, in pity, it's like this incredible word in the Greek. Um, See, our word pity is a whole lot easier to write. That's splanknizomai in the Greek. Splanknizomai. It's a reference to your intestines. It's a gut reaction. It's very visceral. It's very sincere. It's not Jesus, eh, I feel bad for these guys, I'll do something about it. It moved Jesus to the core of his being. He was touched. And this is our God. This is a revelation of who God is in Jesus Christ. He is a God of compassion. And when his kingdom comes, his kingdom comes as a kingdom of compassion. And when you need your miracle from God, you need to know that God moves in your life in compassion. And that's the miracle. The miracle is not just, okay, um, I will heal this site without you having to use Obamacare. That's not the miracle. The miracle is that God in compassion meets the needs of his people to see his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. In whatever way he designs to do it. He doesn't play by our rules. We seek to understand his rules so we can play by them. It's not the way I would do business if I were God. And it's a really good thing I'm not God. Because I mess up my own life. I can't imagine being in charge of yours. Let's keep going. He's not just a God of compassion. But the miracles show that in the kingdom of God, we have a God of authority. We do have a God who rules. The Roman officer comes to Jesus and says, I've got a servant who needs your touch, who needs your healing touch. Jesus says to the Roman centurion... He's a leader of, he's got a troop of a hundred under him, hence centurion, century, one hundred. The Roman commander, officer of a hundred troops, has a servant. Jesus says to the Roman officer, I will come and heal him. The officer says, uh, time out, I'm not worthy to have you under my roof. But I'm a man in authority. Let me put the passage up here. He says, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. You just say the word and my servant will be healed. I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. When I say to one go, he goes. When I say come, he comes. When I say jump, he says how high. I added that last phrase. But he recognized what authority is. It's not the presence of Jesus that would work the miracle. 
It's the authority of Jesus that works the miracle. Jesus is ever-present. God wasn't missing in the company of that Roman's house. God is everywhere. Jesus had the authority, and it's the authority that heals. We can keep going. How about the rooftop visit? This is when Jesus is now in a house and it's so crowded that the, these friends who have a paralyzed buddy, they can't get the paralyzed buddy in through the door. So they go up on the roof and these roofs have thatch tops and they whack through the thatch top and they lower their buddy down on his mat. And Jesus is amazed to see it. Amazed that they would go to that much trouble. Amazed that they had that much confidence. Insurance is not going to cover the roof. And they lowered him down, having cut through the roof. Do you know what Jesus says? Jesus says, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, all of the Pharisees in the room are very upset. They're thinking, Who, this is blasphemy. Who does this guy think he is? Like he has authority to forgive sins? Which is the whole point. Because Jesus says to them, knowing what they're thinking, I know what you're thinking. What's easier for me to say? Take up your mat and head on home? Or your sins are forgiven. I'm saying your sins are forgiven so you know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. If God cannot forgive sins, then God doesn't have authority to heal. It's that Jesus has authority to forgive sins that gives him any significance of, look, I can't forgive your sins and I can't heal you. God might use me to help you understand that Jesus can forgive your sins. God might use me to help you understand that God can perform healing. But I got no power. Not, there's not a person in this room that can forgive me of my sin debt to God. I don't care who you are. God's got that authority. This is authority of sozo, that Greek word. See again? It's not just a question of healing and making well, but inherent in that Greek word is saving and forgiving of sins. Sozo in the Greek. Because he took our illnesses, he bore our diseases. That's the Isaiah passage Matthew quotes on the next healing of Jesus from authority. Where Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. And he's able to do it because Jesus can save he took our illnesses, he bore our diseases, he took our sin on the cross. He has the authority to heal. He has the authority to save. He has sozo, authority. What else do we have? Jesus is not just a compassionate God, a God of compassion, not just a God of authority, but we see in him a teaching God, a God who is out to, to educate us. He doesn't turn us into a computer that merely regurgitates things. As Paul would say later, he's at work renewing our minds. 
You know, the renewing of the mind is what Stephen was preaching this morning from Philippians 4 for Paul. Where he was talking about to, 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 to be worried in nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. That whole sermon this morning was an illustration of how God wants to renew our minds. But he does it hand in hand with us. He's a teaching God. He's out to teach. Not merely download data like a computer jump drive. But to teach us. We see this with Jesus in his synagogue sermon. Jesus has already had a confrontation with the Pharisees over whether or not he, Jesus could heal on the Sabbath. Jesus goes into the synagogue. A synagogue's a place of worship and teaching. And in that public place of worship and teaching, the Pharisees lay a little trap. They know Jesus to be a compassionate man. They bring in a fellow who's got a withered hand. And, and, and they're waiting to see if Jesus is going to heal him on the Sabbath. Thinking the whole while, if he does it, he's done it publicly. We can publicly call him out for heresy. Can he not just wait till tomorrow? Can't Jesus just wait till the Sabbath is over and be a good law-abiding Jew? So in a very Jewish fashion, Jesus teaches with a question. Jesus says, hey, I got a question. Honest question. I want an honest answer. If you had a sheep that fell into a ditch on the Sabbath, how many of you would get him out of the ditch? Now, if they were really honest and really thinking about that, the answer is probably all of them. Because they know if they wait, someone else is going to come steal their little sheep. And it won't be there the next day. You know, and it's one thing to say, yes, don't work, when it's an excuse not to do the dishes. It's another thing altogether to say don't work when you may lose some valuable property in the process. And they're all recognizing, well, yeah, I guess I'd do that. As Jesus says to the man, be healed. And explains to the people, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. See, Jesus in the kingdom is compassionate. He's authoritative. And he's also a teacher. He's also involved in helping us grow and helping us learn. Whoops, that's got to get better. Next, Jesus is not a show and tell God. Now, here's our problem. Many of us want a show-and-tell Jesus. We want a show-and-tell God. i got to tell you, I was uh, taking a class in anthropology at a secular university. And basically the class was one on evolution. And uh, I, I went in for an office hours with the professor because... I wanted to talk to him about how I was going to be writing my exams. And he said, well, what's your problem? He says, you just write what I teach. And I said, well, I can write it. But I said, what I want to do is I want to make it clear that I don't necessarily agree with what you're saying. And he says, well, why don't you? 
And I said, well, I think you've kind of left God out of the picture. And I want, I'm a Christian. And so for me, God's in the picture. And this man starts in anger reacting to me. And he says, don't tell me you actually believe there's a God. And I said, yeah, yeah, I pretty much do. (laughs) He said, that's just outrageous. He said, if there's a God... If you really believe there's a God, let me get a knife and let me hold it over your neck. And you make your God stop me from plunging it into your neck. I said, well, he's God. I'm not. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, I can't make him do anything. He's God. And I've been taught not to test him and not to tempt him. And I got news for you. If he wants to stop you, he can. And if he wants my life to be taken by you, so you spend the rest of your life behind jail being raped by men, he can do that. (laughs) I was a younger guy then. I was a little more impudent. (laughs) He didn't like me very much. I did not answer with Christian compassion. Um... You know that there's a proverb that a soft answer turns away wrath. That was an example of an answer that doesn't. (laughs) It did not help. I went and dropped the course. I had to get his okay to drop it. He didn't want me in there and I didn't want to finish the course. But uh, it was after drop time. But but he did sign the drop sheet. Um, God is not a show and tell God. And we'd love him to be. I would just love, Dan Shelton, for me to be able to say to God so that all of us could agree that he's here, he's real, this whole thing is legit, and there's no real need for faith by having someone come up who's missing a leg. And not a magic show. Truly missing a leg. Walk around, look, no leg. And poof! God grows the leg right there. I would love that because then none of us would need faith. We'd all be idiots if we didn't believe. Maybe it'd take two legs. Might not believe it the first time. Some of you are pretty cynical. But by the second leg, you're going to believe? No. That's not the way God works. And when I was younger, I wanted him to work that way. But now I've come to respect and appreciate the fact he made this universe. He made the laws of the universe. It's not a magic place. It's not a place where we can't wonder, gee, will the sun come up from the east or the west tomorrow? Depends on what mood God's in. God has set this place up with order and with semblance. And we live in the wondrous age of science where we can understand how he's done that in so many ways. How he has set the dials of the universe to where we have his will being done all over the heavens. We pray it would be done on earth where we get involved. He's not a show and tell God. Let's look at it. Jesus is asked multiple times to show off. 
He says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. He says that twice. He says it in Matthew 12. He says it in Matthew 16. Now, some scholars look at it and say, gee, Matthew got a little mixed up. He accidentally quoted this same thing twice. Oh, I suspect Jesus said it twice. I suspect Jesus had to say it a lot more than twice. I suspect Jesus said it many times in his ministry. But it's not what God is about. God isn't here to wow us with his incredible miracle working power in front of our eyes right now. He resurrected Jesus from the dead. It's not like we don't have something, but we'll sit back and say, yeah, but we didn't get to witness it. Oh, come on. If you'd been there, you'd have probably thought something fishy was up. I mean, that's just our nature. And what God's about is changing our nature, but he's changing it through faith. Not by beating us over the head with some academic projectile. And so you've got stories like, you've got stories like uh, uh, the lame man coming up to Jesus. And Jesus heals the lame man and then afterwards he says, see to it that you don't tell anybody. Or Jesus heals the blind man and says to the blind man, see that no one knows about it. Now, in part, this is because if people had known Jesus was already so popular that they were dropping people through the roof to get to him. But there was a real danger. You see, we, we think of the word salvation in a very Christian sense. To the Jews back then, the idea of salvation meant get out from under Roman rule, get out from everyone else's rule, and set up that kingdom that David had. And let the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah be restored. And let our national boundaries be there. Let us sing the star-spangled banner of Israel. Whatever it might have been. Let us go to the Olympics as the nation of Israel and win against all the Gentiles. Because God has set up his earthly kingdom. That's not the kingdom. And that's Matthew's point. Matthew, you'll recall, if you've been in our class, is written to people with a Jewish mindset and especially to Christianized Jews. And so Matthew's trying to re-educate them. The kingdom of God, the son of David that's going to sit on the throne forever, is not an earthly kingdom. It's the kingdom of heaven. The salvation is not simply a salvation from the Roman authorities. It's a salvation of from, from the bondage of sin and all of its ravaging diseases and all of its problems it's an eternal salvation and and can you imagine if jesus had been a show-and-tell god his kingdom would never come in that sense if jesus had been a show-and-tell god everyone would have bowed before him who would not worship a king who's able to raise people from the dead in a word who's able to feed entire armies with a few loaves and fishes I mean, hey, if I'm going to war, I would go to war in a heartbeat for a king who's going to be with me, who has the ability, if I get a nick, to fix it. Who can, with a passing word, do everything that needs to be done. I don't have to worry about running out of ammo. He can make one bullet last for years. I mean, they would make Jesus an earthly king 
in a heartbeat if he'd been the kind of God we want him to be. But his whole point is, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. And there's a kingdom that he's trying to teach us about, that he was trying to teach them about, that's far beyond us. Oh, could he cure every disease we have so we live forever in this world, in this body? Yes. And how pathetic it would be to miss out on the kingdom of heaven because we wanted it on earth. To be the kind of kingdom we want it to be. And that's what he's teaching here. He's not a show-and-tell God. He's a God of compassion. He's a God of authority. He's a teaching God, but he's not a show-and-tell God. Now, those are the healings. What else? Don't worry, we don't take this long with each category. We're wrapping this up. Exorcisms. The exorcisms, again, show Jesus in the kingdom with authority over the enemy. And we live in a day and age where people don't want to believe in the enemy. They don't want to believe in the demons. I mean, if I were Satan, I would so love this age. Because what I would do is I would convince everyone. My number one mission would be to convince you I don't exist. Because if you don't think I exist, you're not looking for me. If Satan can convince us there is no such thing as evil incarnate, there's no such thing as an evil tempter, there's no such thing as an adversary and an enemy, it's just some of us need to grow up. It's just some people aren't very nice, maybe some are even evil. But there's nothing outside, there's no real spiritual warfare going on, those were nice little explanations for 2,000 years ago, but now we know so much better. It's all a matter of science. That's exactly what I'd try and teach. So we have some exorcisms. Jesus goes across to the Gadarenes. Now he's outside Jewish territory, over on the Greek side where the Decapolis, the ten Greek cities are. And he's over there in the Gadarenes. And this is an actual picture of really the only place on the Sea of Galilee where the Gadarenes area was where there's the, the, the slope and the cliff that this could have taken place. So this is where it happened. Water level might have been a little higher, but this is where it happened. Jesus goes, is confronted with the man of Gadarenes, the man of the tombs. The man of the tombs has legion demons within him. The demons cry out, Son of God, don't uh, just cast us into darkness. There's a, 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 a bunch of pigs, a herd of swine. Cast us into those. And so Jesus casts them out. They go into the pigs. The pigs run down and they drown in the water. This, by the way, is the first example of deviled ham. <laughs> the men of the, 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 the community finds out about what Jesus has done. The men of the tombs who've been reckless renegades are actually at peace. And the townspeople come out. Because they want to see Jesus, and then they want to see Jesus go on his way. And that's what they do. They come out because they want to see Jesus, but they don't want to let Jesus deal with them. Oh, isn't that wonderful? To see Jesus as, yeah, I'd be glad to look at Jesus. I just don't want to get too close to him. I'm glad to look at Jesus. I'm glad to see this wonderful, marvelous man. 
But he doesn't need to deal with me. Let him go on his way. Either I'm fine, I don't need to be dealt with. There's no real problem with me. Or maybe it's that I'm so icky, I just I don't even like thought of it. But in the kingdom, Jesus is there. And he has authority to deal with these things. Then there's a Canaanite woman who comes to Jesus and says, Hey, my, daughter's sick. my daughter has demons. Would you come cast out the demons from my daughter? And Jesus says, Well, I've been sent to the Israelites, not to the Canaanites. And she says, Please. And she kneels before Jesus. And Jesus says, Look. Um, I'm here for the food, to, to give food to the master's table and not to the puppy dogs. By the way, the Greek word for dog there is a diminutive. It means the little house puppy. He's not calling her a, some rabid street dog. It's, it's not a, an insult, I guess is what I'm saying. Jesus is not insulting her when he calls her a little puppy dog. But her response is, well, even the puppies get to eat the crumbs that fall from the table. And Jesus is amazed at her persistence. And he casts the demon out of her daughter. And it's a wonderful story, not only of the persistence and not only of Jesus' authority over demons, but how it extends out even beyond his people. It extends out into the kingdom. But it's a story of persistence. That teaches us within the kingdom. It's proper to come before Jesus. It's proper to question him. She challenges Jesus. And he doesn't get upset. He walks her through where she needs to go. To help her understand as he renews her mind. Before he heals and exercises her child. And that's kingdom business. Um... There's a boy who's got demon possession and the apostles bring the boy, the disciples bring the boy. Now Jesus at this point's given the apostles the authority to cast out demons and they've been doing kingdom business. But they're not able to cast this one out so Jesus casts out the demon and the apostles pull him aside afterwards and says, no, no, why, why didn't that work for us? You know, you've been, do we have like, is that beyond our pay grade? You know, is it like, there's, you know, that's eyes only, you know, uh, or necessary eyes only. Jesus says that there are some things that you didn't have enough faith to do it. I want to tell you what that story says to me. There are some things in this world that only Jesus can do. There's a, some things in this world that need the touch of Jesus. Now, we are his body and he may use us to do it. But we have got to see that it is Jesus who is behind all of this. And if we ever lose sight of that, then the, our faith is in the wrong thing. Our faith should never be in what we're doing and how we're doing it. Our faith should always be in the one who works through us and in spite of us. Now, supernatural acts. Let's do these real quick. Supernatural acts, obviously everything we've been talking about, but specifically we've got a couple of others. There's the raging storm. Pastor Stephen referenced it. Jesus is asleep during the storm. The disciples come. They wake Jesus up. Do you know what they say to Jesus? They say, save us, Lord, we're perishing. Do you know what the Greek word is for save there? Sozo. Sozo, Lord, we're perishing. Heal us. Save us. 
Save us. We're perishing. Peace be still. And they're saved. Another one. Jesus takes the loaves and he feeds the, 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 the masses with the loaves and the fish. As Jesus is the bread of life and supplies their needs as well. Jesus supplies physical needs in the kingdom. I love this when Jesus goes up on a mountaintop and, and Elijah and Moses are there. And Peter, James and John get to see it. And Peter, James and John are stunned. And they're at a loss for words. And their reply is, oh no. Let's build uh, three altars. We'll build one for Moses, we'll build one for Elijah, and we'll build one for Jesus. The whole point of that is that Moses and Elijah, the greatest prophet and the greatest priest of the Old Testament, are both giving homage to Jesus. But to them, Jesus has almost become old hat. I mean, he's spectacular in his own way. But they weren't offering to build an altar to Jesus before this happened. But when all of a sudden Moses and Elijah show up, it's kind of like, oh my goodness, look what we have. Can you imagine having the Son of God in your presence and then being stunned when someone else walks in the room? Because Jesus had become, to some extent, old hat. Resurrections. Kind of two, kind of one. We have Jesus uh, raising the girl from the dead. But she's not raised from the dead in the same sense that Jesus is. She's more resuscitated. Jesus is the resurrection. Jesus is resurrected in an eternal glorified body. The girl, she gets her same old body. She's still got to die one day. There is a resurrection for eternity versus a resuscitation for a little while longer. So where does this leave us? Well, the only miracle we left out of Matthew is Jesus cursing the fig tree because it was barren. So now I've mentioned that. You've now gone through every miracle in Matthew. Where does it leave us? Well, as I've gotten to know God well, but he's still very much a mystery, I'm sure I don't have all of the elucidation, but here's what I want to tell you. These miracles are proclamations of the kingdom of God. And the kingdom is, in, we're in the now and the not yet phase of that. We're in a time where the kingdom is coming, and yet the kingdom is here. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, and the kingdom of heaven is still coming. And we live in this stage where we've got kind of a foot in both worlds. God's goal is not to take us through some miracle chain and prove himself to us. God's goal is to take us into his kingdom through faith in his resurrection. And then grow us in that faith as he renews our minds. And it's a process. And it's one that's a joyful process. And don't ever, don't ever, ever, ever try to rush it. Just soak up. Do the Lord's Prayer daily. Give us this day our daily bread. Your kingdom come is a daily prayer to the Lord. 
We want God over the process of our lives every day to see his kingdom coming and coming and coming and coming and manifesting itself in our lives as we, in Paul's language, are transformed little by little every day into the image of his son. And that's the grace and that's the beauty of the mystery. So here are your points for home. Who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? Paul asked that question of the Corinthians. And Paul's point was, it's the spirit of God that understands God. And our understanding of God doesn't come because we're geniuses and we're able to piece it together down here on earth using our logic. That's the point of Revelation is that God has to give us something outside of ourselves and some direction and some instruction for us to come into faith. But even beyond that, it is a revelation of who God is that we get through Scripture and that we get through Jesus. And that revelation of who God is, is who gives us enlightenment into who we are and what's going on. So my point for home one for me, my first take home, I want to know Jesus better. And I hope you'll join me in that. I want to study. I want to read. I want to pray. I want to walk the walk. I want to talk the talk. I want to do everything I can to know Jesus better every day. Point for home two. Sozo. Save us, Lord. We are perishing. Not just in the boat. Not just from physical disease, but eternally. Whatever your need is, whatever your desperation is, any of those, the circumstances of life, the circumstances of family, the circumstances of your own soul, you kneel before God and you beseech Him. Save us, Lord. We're perishing. I'm committed to kneeling before God for sozo. I want healing. I want deliverance. I want to be set free. Not just for me, for my family, for my loved ones, for you, my friends, who whatever you've got going on in your life. If you say, Mark, I need your prayers. I want to pray for you. I want to ask God to intervene in your life in whatever way he can. Email us through the class website. That only goes to three of us, I think. You can keep it semi-anonymous. Probably not. You're emailing. Anyway, you email me. I'm not going to tell anybody, but I'd love to pray for you. Last point for home. When they lifted up, this is from the Mount of Transfigurations. Oh, we're going to build a booth. We'll build a booth for all of you. And then they look up. And Moses and Elijah are gone because you don't worship Moses and Elijah. You worship the Lord Jesus. And when they looked up, they didn't see anybody anymore. Only Jesus. There was someone worthy of building a booth to. There was someone worthy of worship. But as spectacular as it was to have Moses and Elijah there, those weren't the two that needed the booth. I got two points for home on this. Number one, I don't want Jesus to ever get so old to me that I'm more interested in seeing some spectacular miracle 
than I am in having him minister in my life and through me. I want to see Jesus only. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you so much for your kingdom. And we pray that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done in our lives on this earth just as it is in your heaven. In Jesus we pray, amen. Thank you.